See everybody. We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together to look at your word. We do pray as we look at Revelation chapter 12 that you'd help us to understand it, that you'd help us to interpret it correctly and to apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with everyone here. Now, remember, this is a message I gave a few weeks ago, so I'll do a little bit of a review since I know we may have some people that weren't there the first time, and I know it's been several weeks since we covered this material, but we're talking about who the child is in Revelation chapter 12. And what I was impressed with is how Bob was taking material and presenting it before the church saying, try to find fault with the argument theologically. And I'm going to do the same thing. I am claiming that the child in Revelation chapter 12 certainly is Jesus Christ, but also the church. And the, the child being caught up to the throne is not a reference to the ascension at the first advent of Christ, but rather a reference to the rapture at the second advent. And at the very end, if we can get through it all today, we'll explain why that matters in our debates with amillennialists and postmillennialists. But let's get started here. Let's look at the debated text again. This is just a review. I already covered this material. But remember Revelation 12, 1 through 4, John wrote this. He said, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. Now, notice here, I'll pull up my pointer. We're debating as to who these three characters are, the woman, the child, and the red dragon. And traditionally, the woman has been clearly understood as Israel. I would not challenge that. I think that's exactly right. I've mentioned the Roman Catholic Church will try to claim that the woman is Mary. That is a dismal failure of interpretation based on bias, and we know that. Why? Because notice the reference to the sun, moon, the sun and moon and the 12 stars. That's a direct reference back to Genesis 37, 9. Okay, where Joseph had the dream of the sun, moon, and stars. And certainly, that was a dream of Israel, his brothers bowing down to him. Remember, that's what got him in trouble with his brothers so that they wanted to sell him off into slavery. Okay, so we know that the woman is, in fact, Israel. Now, traditionally, the child has been understood to be the Messiah most often. And again, I would not take issue with that. What I'm going to add to it is that I think it's the Messiah plus the church. Notice the dragon. Let's spend a little time on the dragon. Notice the dragon is literally later on declared to be Satan. So you don't have to wonder who the dragon is. Why? Because John tells you who he is. But I want you to see the corporate nature of the dragon. Notice it says he has seven heads and ten horns. Hold on to that tidbit because that comes back into play in Revelation 17 where we see that the dragon is using the nations aligned with Antichrist for his purposes. Why am I laboring that point? Because we should see then with the red dragon, it's Satan plus the nations. There's another corporate identity. So the reason I'm saying this is the traditional imp- interpretation of this passage says the woman's Israel, the child is the Messiah, and the dragon is Satan. And again, I wouldn't take issue with that per se, But I would add to it that there's probably a corporate reading to all of these. The woman is Israel, which is certainly a corporate identity. It's not just Jacob, right? It's not just one individual. Remember, Jacob was called Israel, the one who struggles with God. Well, he, of course, is a nation. What I'm claiming is it's more than likely the child is the Messiah plus his people here. Number three, the dragon is certainly Satan, but also the nations that he uses. Now, let's, so, let's look at the dragon again. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 17, 12 through 17, and I'm going to show you where these ten horns come into play that we had just read about in Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 4. So turn again to Revelation 17, 12, and then we'll read verse 17. And this will show you how Satan is using the nations. So what you find in Revelation 
is Satan is using the nations for his purposes, but God is sovereign over that, and he's using Satan and the nations and the Antichrist for his purposes. And again, that doctrine is called what? Compatibility. God is sovereign. People are responsible. Right? Just like we saw in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ, remember, it was foreordained that he would be crucified, but they nailed him to a cross. They were guilty for nailing him to a cross, but God was sovereign and used it for his purposes. That's the same thing we see in the book of Revelation, and that's why it will not do for someone to say, well, those nations, it's their wrath, but it's not the wrath of God. No, God uses the nations as instruments of his wrath, He tells us that he does that, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 10. So, Revelation 17, verse 12, it says, The ten horns which you saw... By the way, let me stop here. How do we know the proper interpretation of the symbology? Because John here is giving it to us, right? So, I don't have to guess. John is telling us what the ten horns are that belong to the dragon. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have not yet received a kingdom but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So they receive authority with the Antichrist for a short time. Now, let's stop there for just a moment before we read verse 17. Does anybody remember in the Old Testament where you see the reference to the ten horns? Daniel chapter 7. That's exactly right. So in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about this final kingdom that would come about, and there would be ten horns... And lo and behold, those ten horns, according to Daniel 7.25, would wear down the saints for 1,260 days, the very same time period that you see in Revelation chapter 12. Okay, so we're making connections. Notice verse 17 now of Revelation 17. It says, For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Can God be any clearer that he is sovereign, that he's using the wicked choices of the wicked nations and their allegiance to Antichrist for his purposes? It says God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. So clearly there's the doctrine of compatibility. My point is to show you that if the dragon has ten horns... It means he's using these nations. There should be a corporate reading to the dragon. If there's a corporate reading to Israel, there's a corporate reading to the dragon, then why not the child? That's the import of what I'm arguing. And I think it begs that there's probably a corporate reading to the child as well. Now, let's look at the debated text. Again, this is review. I've covered this last time, so I'll go a little quicker than normal. Revelation 12, 5 through 9. This is where we're really debating what is meant by the, the... the child here, the son. It says, And she, that would be a reference to the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to, the thro- to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Stop there. What did we just talk about? What did the ten horns do in Daniel 7? Antichrist nations aligned with him. They persecuted the saints for 1,260 days. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. The last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Notice what happens. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, the big debate is, who is this child, namely the son? Now, I'm going to be arguing that the son is not simply a reference to Christ. It certainly is Christ, but I think the better reading is it's Christ plus the church. There's a corporate reading. And one of the reasons why, and I'll come to you in a sec here, Brian, is notice in blue, notice the term caught up. That verb there, harpazo, is the same term used for the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The other import that I want you to see in this text I think is important is notice there was this idea of rescue. 
that the child would be rescued from the dragon who was trying to devour the child. Let me back up. Notice the dragon stood before the woman, that's Israel, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So what was the rescue of this child? It was harpazo being caught up. Let me ask you the question. Have you read the New Testament and found that the ascension of Christ is ever depicted as a rescue? No, the ascension of Jesus Christ is always a victorious party after the battle, and it is victory over Satan, not rescue from Satan. That's one thing when I taught this passage initially years ago, I think it was here, that I really struggled with. How can in any way the ascension of Christ be a rescue from Satan rather than victory over Satan. And later in this presentation, I'll show you passage after passage after passage in the New Testament where the ascension of Christ is victory over the demonic realm and over Satan, never a rescue from them. And so that should tip us off that, wait a minute, maybe there's more behind the sun and the being caught up than merely Christ in the ascension. It's more than likely a reference to Christ, the church, and the rapture. Yes, Brian. Little confusion going on here. Yes. We're told that the church is the bride. Yes. Now we're saying also that the church is not only the bride, but it's also the child slash son. Could you right. explain that? Yeah, so in the metaphor, remember the writers use different metaphors at different times. What I'm claiming is that that's the natural reading when we really look at this text, that the son is a corporate reading. And I'll be proving it to you through some grammar where John deliberately abuses Greek grammar because he wants to link us to Isaiah 66 where there was a corporate reading where Israel gave birth, one, gave birth to a nation. So there's a corporate reading to Isaiah 66 which John wants to point us to. So that's another reason why I think the son should be seen in a corporate way. So there's various ways of understanding the church. I do believe the church sometimes, metaphorically, is like Israel. Why do I say that? Well, Peter, doesn't Peter call unbelievers the Gentiles? Well, why does he do that? Well, the implication is the church is, in some sense, the new Israel. I don't have, I don't have to apologize for saying that. That imagery is in the New Testament. But at the same time, the church is never replacing Israel. So that gives me greater credibility because I can say to the amillennialist, hey, I take all of your imagery where it talks about we being the new royal priesthood, being a temple of God. Uh, We're no longer like the Gentiles, the goyim, the nations. We are in some sense like Israel, but we are not Israel. There's still a plan for Israel. And so we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Unless you enter into the church right now during the church age through faith alone and Christ alone, you will not be a partaker of the kingdom that's coming to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Israel. But the kingdom's coming to Israel. So what we have is on one sense we have evangelicals who will say, I don't believe in election, but I believe in Israel. Then you have R.C. Sproul, who I adore, who will say, well, I believe in election, but I don't believe there's a plan for Israel. What we have to do is get it together to say, no, Israel stands because of election. Israel will always stand. And the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted in him, your sins were forgiven, and you became a partaker of the glorious kingdom coming to Israel. That's a fact. Yes, Bob. You made a good point about metaphors. Yes. If you look at the various parables, metaphors, they're there to make a certain point about a certain aspect of whatever's under discussion. Yes. To take every metaphor and say it has to be a seamless garment of the whole and be internally consistent is absurd. Yes. Because you can talk about the rock. Right. Okay. Um, That's a metaphor. Yep. There are many such things. And so we need to take the context of each passage, what's under discussion, right. and see what, what it means in that case. Amen. And that's just how language works. Yes. A single word or concept 
can be used metaphorically for a lot of different things. Yes, exactly. And right. if you do so, it doesn't mean they have to all agree with each other. That's right. Well said. So we have to let the writer of Scripture use the metaphor in the context that he's using. Right. The yep. simple thing, the author determines the meaning, yes. not the reader. Amen. That's it. No, I, I, I'm trying to also, I wanted to ask. Yes. I, maybe you pointed this out. In Acts 9, when Paul was persecuting the church, yes. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Exactly. And so there's an issue of the corporate identity. Exactly right. In fact, um, to answer more of Brian's question, we'll also see in Revelation chapter 2, 26 or 27, this idea of, remember the promise that Messiah would reign over the nations? There's a citation to the church of Thyatira where Jesus says, if you overcome, I will give you the right to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Well, wait a minute. I thought Messiah was going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Well, there it's being applied to the corporate body. Well, that's carried forward all the way through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, in the throne room, where's the expectation where the saints will reign? It says, they shall reign upon a cloud, strumming a harp. No, it says they shall reign upon the earth. Well, wait, wait a minute. They're going to reign upon the earth? That is news to the amillennialist. They are saying it's all going to be in heaven, and it's now. Revelation 2, 26 or 27, Revelation 5, 10 gives us an expectation that it's going to be on the earth, and it's going to be in Israel. Why? Because we are with Christ. And if we're with him, we're going to rule the nations. Doesn't Paul say that we're going to judge even the angels? Well, wait a minute, I thought Christ was going to do that, but we're with him. Doesn't Daniel 7 say that the saints will reign forever and ever? Wait a minute, I thought it was Christ. We're with him. That's the idea. It's because we're with him, we're going to reign too. So that's what I'll lay out. The corporate identity of the Son is inherent within the text of the book of Revelation itself. That's what I want you to see. Now, again, the term harpazo in blue, same term for the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. Notice here in verse 6, the woman here fled into the wilderness to be protected for how long? 1,260 days. That's the exact time period that, in fact, the book of Daniel promises persecution of the church at the end. The 1,260 days of, I'm sorry, of Israel. And so the woman there is Israel. Uh, verse 7, notice verse 7 gives us a parenthetical where we see more information. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war. We know the ultimate battle that's being waged in the world isn't just merely between people, flesh and blood, but according to Ephesians 6, it's principalities and power. Remember in Daniel chapter 10, Gabriel wanted to answer the prayer of Daniel, but he was restrained by the prince of Persia. There was a demonic battle going on with the angels. We see it there. We see it again in the 70th week of Daniel. Notice verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. This is important. Was the dragon Satan thrown down after the ascension of Christ at the first advent? Or is he going to be thrown down at the second advent? That's why this matters. Is it going to be something that occurred? So the amillennialist, what they claim is that Satan was bound by the first advent of Christ by the work of the cross. Bob has astutely pointed out in a debate with an amillennialist, well, wait a minute. Doesn't it say in Revelation chapter 20 that Satan will be unloosed for a short time? If the finished work of Christ was what bound Satan, but yet he's going to be loosed for a short time, then why would the work of the cross be undone for a short period of time. That's all what's at stake with this debate. So what I'm showing you is the much better reading is not that the dragon was thrown down at the first advent of Christ, but that he's going to be thrown down at the second advent in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, 10 through 12. I want to finish adding on to verse 9 here of Revelation 12. And I want to show you how there's no room now in heaven for Satan as the bride of Christ goes up, Satan goes down. Those who dwell in heaven are contrasted with the earth dwellers that are receiving the wrath of God upon the earth. Revelation 12, 10 through 12, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, 
For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Stop there. Right now during the church age, Satan is in the throne room at times. He, he can mill about. Remember, he is not omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. That is an incommunicable attribute of God that God alone has. So Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. So sometimes, like in 1 Peter 5.8, he is depicted as going on the earth, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. Other times he is depicted, like in Job 1, as in the throne room of God. But what Revelation 12.10 is telling us is that he accuses us day and night. Now, what is his accusation? It's probably that you and I are moral lawbreakers, and you know what? He's right. The problem is, after the first advent of Christ, Christ finished work on the cross, the accusations have no merit. That's what Christ accomplished at the first advent. At the second advent, what's being depicted here, remember, we see a time reference, 1,260 days. That has to do with Daniel's 70th week, not the first coming. Now he's going to be thrown down, and he's no longer even going to be able to accuse us anymore. It's as if you and I, the bride, went up to the throne room, and God says, I, want to, I won't tolerate an accuser of my bride. You're going down. We go up, he goes down. And notice it describes the brethren, us, that is believers. Verse 11, it says, They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Stop there. I've talked numerous times in the book of Revelation about a phrase that occurs 11 times, and that is those who dwell upon the earth. Remember in Revelation 3.10, the great promise Jesus gives to the church of Philadelphia? He says, Because you have kept my word... I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. What is the purpose of the 70th week of Daniel? To test believers? No, it's to test those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, occurs 11 times in the book of Revelation. It is exclusively referring to unbelievers on the earth. Notice how believers are referred to as heavens and those who dwell in them. We are heaven dwellers, not the earthly dwellers. Uh, doesn't it say somewhere in our epistles, I forget which one, where you and I, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Right. So notice what it says after that. It says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. That's why the 70th week of Daniel is so bad. Satan comes down and he literally brings hell to earth. Why does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, that that time will be unparalleled tribulations such has never been seen since the beginning of time nor ever will, and unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive because Satan has come down to bring the very wrath. And again, it's the wrath of God. God is using it for his purposes. Yes, Peter. Just a quick question. Test them for what? What's that? The unbelievers. I'm test sorry, to the, test those what? Said, to test those who dwell on the earth. Test them for what? Question to show mark. that their faith is not genuine. Okay. To, to show that they that. don't belong. It's not yeah. for a time to come. This is a believe. test that they're going to fail. Okay. <laughs> That's not. how it's depicted in the book of Revelation. So God weighs them and finds them wanting. In fact, ironically, in the book of Revelation, they even recognize, even as early as the sixth seal, the unbelievers know this is the wrath of God. They still won't repent. Yeah. Revelation chapter 9, Bob has pointed this out numerous times. The wrath comes upon them. They know it. A third of the earth dies. They still won't repent of their sorcery. So there's no time for them to come to believe at that um, point. For the vast majority. Now, there will be some who are saved okay. in the 70th week of Daniel who come to faith. What I'm saying is the vast majority will not. Yeah, it's the same ratio that we see today. Yep. Well, that, that section of Revelation 9 should prove once for all that the fall and the sin nature is real. Yes. And this desire to be in contact with the realm of the spirits. Yes. That was taken away back at uh, 
when the uh, angels had, uh, came into the yes. daughters of men, Genesis, yes. they were locked up. When they're let loose for a while, people are excited about it. Right. And it turns out to be a horrible, hellish outcome. Yes. And after everything that happens, just read it. They, they said they did not repent of their sorceries. They wanted more. Right. They want more of what was so horrific, and they still want more. Yes. And you just see part of that in the description of Romans 1. Yeah. That you look at the bad outcome of rebelling against God, living ways that God has said is not good. Yeah. The, the damage, the, the wars, the diseases, the horrible things that happen. They always want more. Right. So to think that you can reform sinners through social structures yeah. is utterly absurd, but they just don't get it. And yeah. Christians who believe in reconstructionism and postmillennialism are just as deceived. Yes, absolutely. They think you can Christianize unbelievers and get a good outcome. Right. But it never has happened. Yeah. It just leads to more war. That's right. And so I, it's too bad more people don't get the point of the message. Yes. It's the only escape from a horrific, horrific outcome is to flee to Christ Amen. And, and have forgiveness of sins Amen. and cling to him and believe his word. Right. He's the one who has our best interest in mind. Amen. Bob, you remind me, um, one of the challenges the amillennialist will throw out against us premillennialists. They'll say, well, they can't imagine how you would have unbelievers living during a millennial kingdom of perfection, as it were, with the Lord, and yet they wouldn't come to faith, that they would disobey the Lord. Well, let's go back to the garden. Didn't they walk with God? Didn't they have it all? There was one tree. One. Remember, Satan lies. He says, the Lord has said you can't eat of all the trees. No, he, missed, he fibbed, didn't he? It was one tree. They had perfection. They were in the garden with the Lord, and yet they wanted to be God. The same thing will happen in the millennial kingdom. They'll have perfection, and yet it shows even though they have perfection once again, there's going to be rebellion within the ranks because, no, they want to be God. The fall... And the effects of the fall are so profound that someone could be living with God in the millennial kingdom and yet still rebel. That's how profoundly evil the human heart is. Now, let's keep moving here. I want to show you again. I I'd left off last time with this, and I want to keep moving on from it. Remember, I, let me give you some bullet points. Both Israel and Satan with the nations are corporate identities. Why not the child? So I'm laying out the bullet points why I think the child should be rendered in a corporate way. Both, yes, the Messiah, but also his people. Number two, both Revelation 2.26 through 27, we'll come to that, and Revelation 12.5 apply to both Christ and the church corporate identity. Revelation 2.26 through 27, the promise is that Messiah's reign of a rod, with a rod of iron over the nations, Psalm 2.9, extends to us as well. So you who have trusted in Christ will be ruling and reigning with him in the future kingdom. So, of course, there should be a corporate reading. Number three, Revelation 12.5 alludes to corporate identity in Isaiah 66.7. I'll show you that. that. There's a birth of a nation, not just birth of one son, but the son is a nation. There's a corporate reading, and John deliberately wants us to see it by goofing up some Greek grammar. And I'll talk about that here in bullet point number four. Strange grammatical construction reinforces John is making a connection to Isaiah 66, 7 through 9. So normally Greek grammar, adjectives match the nouns in their gender. So there's three genders in Greek. You have masculine, feminine, neuter. Well, the, the term for son, huias, is a masculine noun. So you would expect any adjective modifying it to be masculine as well. But in fact, John uses a neuter adjective, arson. Why does he do that? Because the same construction is used in the construction of the Septuagint of Isaiah 66-7. He's linking us back. Not that there was a violation of grammar, but it's the terminology that's used. And I'll show you that here in a moment. So literally, the way it's rendered in Greek, it says, she had a son, it's a male. 
where you would expect she had a son, that's probably sufficient, he's male. Right? So instead of saying she had a son, he's male, John says she had a son, it's male. And he's doing it deliberately to link us to the reading of Isaiah 66, 7. If you don't see that, you'll be out in left field as I was regarding what Isaiah, or excuse me, Revelation 12 and the child is about. I will come to it, Isaiah 66, 7. Yep, I've got it all. We're all coming to it. I'm just setting the stage. Yep. Yeah, yeah, good. I love it. I'm glad you are. That's great. Um, yeah, so then uh, number five, harpazo, Revelation 12, 5, again, is the term used for Christ rapturing his church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Isn't it a little ironic that the same term used for the rapture of the church is being used in this text? I think it's more than just coincidental. Number six, the ascension. This is the big one. The ascension of Christ's view makes no sense in light of the rescue imagery of Revelation 12, 1 through 5. The ascension of Christ is never a rescue from Satan, but always depicted as victory over Satan. That's huge. Now, with that, let me begin by unpacking the corporate identity inherent to the Son in the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation 2. I mentioned this earlier, verses 26 through 27. This is the promise given to the church of Thyatira. Jesus says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So does everyone see in blue this reference to having authority over the nations that he shall rule them with a rod of iron? That's Psalm 2.9. That is applied to the Messiah. The Messiah is going to rule and reign over the nations, but now Messiah is, Jesus Christ is applying it to us, to all who believe. Does everyone catch on to that? All right, so if you're an overcomer, how are you an overcomer? 1 John 5, 4 through 5, the one who has faith. The one who has faith in Christ is the overcomer. That's how you overcome. So if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be ruling at, with Christ with a rod of iron. How important is Psalm 2 that was being referenced here to the second coming of Christ and our understanding of eschatology? So important is Psalm chapter 2 that for the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus Christ himself, it was the quintessential proof that the apostles were correct that the Messiah was going to return and that that was the proper doctrine taught in the Old Testament. Well, you can read about that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember, you had false teachers who were claiming that Christ was not going to return. They were the scoffers of 2 Peter 3. Well, how did Peter disprove them? Well, he said they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 2.7. So what that did, it was an authentication that if the Messiah is going to have to rule over the nations, he must have to return. That's how Peter understood it. So he had his interpretation authenticated by God the Father himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. By the way, the Mount of Transfiguration itself is a foreshadowing, a down payment, however you want to put it, of the parousia, the coming of Christ. Why? Because in every, every single text... In all three of our Synoptic Gospels, the glory of the Lord is referred to in the previous section. The very next phrase is the transfiguration. In other words, Jesus says, some will be standing here that will see the Son of Man glorified. I, immediately after that, you have the Mount of Transfiguration. Immediately. Why? Because the Messiah is glorified, showing us a foreshadowing of the parousia. So Peter uses Psalm 2 as proof that the Messiah has to return. So if Psalm 2 is that connected to the work of the Messiah, now Messiah himself is applying it to us. Well, you and I are going to rule and reign, aren't we? That's the grand plan and the grand promise. So in Revelation 12, 5, what do we have? It says, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to what? Wait a minute, it's the same verse, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That was the same promise that we saw earlier in Revelation 2, 26 or 27. Psalm 2, 9, Psalm 2, 9. Does everyone see that? There's a connection. And if we're the thoughtful reader, we have to say, wait a minute, this applies not just to the Messiah, but Jesus says, I will give authority over the nations to us. 
that we will rule them with a rod of iron as well. That's where the inherent corporate reading comes in. So we're just reading the, the text for all it says. Now, I want to show you something very exciting. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 19.15. Revelation 19.15 is the final battle of the 70th week of Daniel. If you want to know what outlines in the book of Revelation the last seven years, it goes from Revelation 6 to Revelation 19. That's the 70th week of Daniel. So after the 70th week is over, the Messiah returns at that final battle. Remember the nations surround Jerusalem? You see that in Joel 3, Zechariah 14. But it's also here in Revelation 19.15. Why is this important? Because a post-millennialist will claim, this is not Jesus returning. This is Jesus reigning from heaven. Well, really? Well, then why is Psalm 2.9 being cited, the very psalm that, Jesus, that Peter himself gave proof of the Messiah's return to earth? Why is that being cited? Notice what it says, Revelation 19.15. From his mouth, this is the mouth of the Messiah, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's Psalm 2.9, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's the rescue operation. The Messiah returns, he destroys all of the enemies, he subdues them, and now he's going to reign from Jerusalem. And who is going to reign with him? Every one of us who have trusted in Jesus. So what the Messiah does is always on our behalf. We rule over the nations not because of who we are, but because of who we are with. We're with him. That's the nature of the corporate reading of the Son. You and I, the moment you believed, were adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. If Christ is going to reign, you must reign. Why? Because you're adopted in. That's the idea. And again, this makes sense now. That's why... The harpazo is used. That's why the term for rapture is being used, because it's not the ascension. It's not a reference merely to the Messiah. It's the Messiah and the church. And that's why it's a rescue operation, because we do have to be rescued from Satan. Why? Well, Jesus says, unless those days not be cut short, no flesh would survive. Right? So it is a rescue operation for us. That's why it's not a reference to the ascension. So a corporate reading of Isaiah 66 I had mentioned earlier that John deliberately takes an adjective that should be masculine, he makes it neuter in order to link us to Isaiah 66, 7. Now, let me lay out Isaiah 66 a little bit about that, that book because I know we're jumping into all this in Isaiah. Isaiah 66 begins in verses 1 through 6 with God rebuking unbelievers of Israel who were engaged in external ritualism, yet they hated their fellow Israelites. That's Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. When you get to Isaiah 66, 7 through 14, Isaiah pictures Zion, that is Jerusalem, as a pregnant woman giving birth to a boy without any pain. In other words, it's going to be a supernatural work of God where a nation is going to be born because there's going to be no labor pains. If you go back to Isaiah 26, there are labor pains, but finally there's nothing born. That's because in Isaiah 26, it depicts the work of man. But in Isaiah 66, what man couldn't do, even Israel, God does alone. He brings about the birth of the nation. And so that's where we pick it up here in Isaiah 66, 7 through 9. This is all about Israel being brought as a nation at the end of time in the 70th week of Daniel. Notice the miraculous deliverance of this nation. Before she travailed she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Stop there. Notice normally a woman goes through the pains of delivery, the labor pains. But here what's being depicted is that there's not going to be labor pains. It says before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now, this is where you have the reference to, and I'll show you in here in a minute. I wonder if I have it on here. Yeah, I think I have it on here. Here, Isaiah 66, 7, etiken arson. This is the same term that's being used by John in Revelation 12, 5. That's why he's abusing the grammar. He's linking you to this, the male son, the boy. That's what he's doing. But what I want you to do is I want you to be a good reader first of Isaiah 66. Notice in verse 8, the question is, who has heard of such a thing? 
Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Stop there. Look at the boy. Again, this is a direct reference by the Apostle John in Revelation 12:5, where he's using the same grammar. And notice the boy here in Isaiah 66 is actually what? A nation. It's a corporate reading. So if there's a corporate reading in Isaiah 66 and John is going out of his way, he's even abusing the grammar to link you back to it, certainly you should see the same corporate reading to the Son in Revelation 12.5, that the Son isn't just one, but it's the many, like here in Isaiah 66. The boy is in fact a land, the nation. So what's being depicted is the supernatural work of God in the 70th week of Daniel, where because Israel failed... He will, in fact, do it himself. He'll bring about the birth of the nation in one day. Supernaturally, he'll bring it about in this one day. All right? And again, let's keep reading. Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. It's miraculous. Verse 9, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who, shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Those questions are designed to say, well, of course not. They're rhetorical. God is going to give birth to the land of Israel again as a nation in mass who will trust in him. Now, let's come down here to John's addition to this phrase that he uses in Revelation 12.5 using Daniel 7.13's son because he adds to the male the idea of a son. So let me just show you. Revelation 12.5, here's the Greek. Etiken Huian Arson, he bore a son, it's a male. That's literally how you would read it. That's taken right from Isaiah 66, 7, where you have Etiken Arson, where there was born a boy or a male, right here. Does everyone see that? So notice here, John in Revelation 12, 5 is adding the son. Why? Because he's blending it with Daniel 7, 13, the son of man. Why is that important? Well, because there's a corporate identity to the Son and the people of God in Daniel 7 as well. So let's turn our Bibles to Daniel 7, and let's just turn to like verse 13. I'll actually have it on the screen here. Um, I'll actually have you guys read with me verses 14 through 17, so I just want you to be prepared for that. Let's read Daniel 7, 13. Again, why is John adding the Son to the male in Revelation 12, 5, because he's linking us not just to Isaiah 66, 7, corporate reading, but to Daniel 7, corporate reading. What I'm saying is in Isaiah 66, a male child is born, but it's actually a nation. In Daniel 7, the Messiah, the one, is going to reign, but the saints reign with him. And it's clear as day in the text. It's the one and the many. It's a corporate reading. So why shouldn't we have a corporate reading then to the Son in Revelation 12.5. We have a corporate reading in Isaiah 66.7 and in Daniel 7 that John is clearly alluding to. We have the corporate reading taught in Revelation 2.26-27. So why are we not seeing the corporate reading? I think we should. That's my point. Daniel 7.13, notice he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Stop there. Notice the reference to the Son of Man. That is Jesus Christ's favorite self-designation of himself. That's how he refers to himself most often as the Son of Man. Does he do that to accentuate his humanity? No, he's actually doing it to link us to his messianic credentials from Daniel chapter 7 because he is the Messiah who reigns. Now, I hope you have your Bibles open to Daniel seven fourteen. We'll read through verse 17. Notice what it says to him. It says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Verse 16, it says, I approached one of those who were standing by, and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. So let's stop there. The four beasts that he's referring to there are Babylon, 
the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece. Then after that, you had the Roman Empire. Well, if you keep reading on into Daniel, we won't, 7, 22 through 25, or verse 23 through 25, you'll see that it's from that last kingdom that the ten horns of the Antichrist come. So he's getting you all the way to Antichrist's kingdom. Why is that important? Because now it's time for the Messiah to reign after the Antichrist kingdom is thrown down. Notice verse 18. Now we're back on the screen. I, I could fit this on the screen. Verse 18, it says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. Stop there. I thought it was the son who was going to receive the kingdom. Wait a minute. I thought it was the son who was going to receive the kingdom. Now it's the saints? It's a corporate reading. Like Scott just said, yes. It's both and. That's the point of Isaiah 66. The son is a nation. It's a corporate reading. That's what we have in Daniel 7. That's what we have in Revelation 2, 26 through 27. That's what we have, therefore, in Revelation 12, 5. The son, the male child, is the Messiah and his people. That explains the rapture. It explains the rescue. It explains why it's probably not the ascension. Yes, we'll come to Mike, and um, right after we'll come to Luann. So Luann first, and we'll come to you, Mike. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, I just want to be sure that I am understanding you correctly on um, Isaiah 66 that these verses that you're referring to are um, eschatological, correct? And that, so they are in the future. I had another part to that, and I can't think of it. No, that's good, Luann. Um, Absolutely, I believe it's a reference to the millennial kingdom, then that blends into the eternal states. They're both kind of blended in the same text. Right, and you stated that God does this. Yes. So, because we have read these verses, you know, can a country be brought forth in one day? Can a nation be born in a single moment? And some people have referred to that as 1948. Right, yeah, so I would disagree with that simply because when you read the rest of Isaiah 66, it ushers in the millennial kingdom, okay? So that would be the reason why we wouldn't look for it in 1948. Plus, they have not been brought to faith in mass, so they're still covenant breakers before God, right? So they're still living during the time of the Gentiles. So Isaiah 66, I believe, is referring to what will happen in the future 70th week of Daniel. Absolutely. By the way, a quick cross-reference that you may want to read about yourself. If you read Isaiah 26, it's, there's so much profundity to Isaiah, it's hard to get out in just a short time. But there's a contrast in the book of Isaiah. It's between the city of chaos. It's literally, the, remember in Genesis 1-1, the earth was formless and void. The term tohu is used. Well, that same term is used of the city of Babylon. In Isaiah 26, the city of Jerusalem is going to be established. So there's a battle. It's between two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Isaiah 26 promises that Jerusalem is going to be brought forth, but Israel can't do it. So Israel goes through the labor pains, but they can't bring about the birth. Fast forward to Isaiah 66. Who's going to bring about the birth of the nation? It couldn't be the people of God. They failed. And if Israel failed, who had the patriarchs, the covenants, the promises, the scriptures, the oracles of God, how much less would the Gentiles be able to do it? So humanity fails. God brings it about. It's a supernatural birth. And again, it's a corporate reading. And that's exactly why John is borrowing from it. The son is, there's a corporate reading I think, inherent to the text itself. It's, yes, it's the Messiah, but it's the Messiah and his people. Okay, let me keep moving. Let me talk about, this is an important point here, the ascension or rapture. Can the rescue of the male son in Revelation 12, 1 through 5, refer to Christ's ascension? I don't think so. And I'm going to show you evidence that every time the ascension is referred to, it refers to a victory of Christ over Satan, not a rescue from Satan. Um, let's begin by talking about the terminology used with the ascension. The ascension uses apero. Apero means to cause to move up. Or it uses anabino, which literally means to go up. Or analumbano, which is to lift up or to carry up. Never does the ascension use harpazo, the term for the rapture, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Now, Just because I say that, that doesn't mean there couldn't be a one-off. There's flexibility with language. 
But what I'm telling you is in context of Revelation 12, the harpazo rescue idea doesn't make any sense because if it's the ascension of Christ, Christ's ascension is not a rescue. Again, it's victory over Satan. The New Testament writers always depict Christ's ascension as a powerful victory over demonic powers, not a rescue from the demonic powers. Let's look at some of that evidence. In fact, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip through these two. I want to come right to this one, the big kahuna, Ephesians 4, 8 through 9. Notice what Paul writes. This is about the ascension of Christ and about the giving of the gifts that he gives by the Spirit after he ascends on high. Notice here in Ephesians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says regarding Christ, he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Let's stop there. The original citation that he's giving us is from Psalm 68, 18. The original context of that was, remember David was the Lord's anointed? He ascended up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And what did he do? He sacked the captives. He took captive the Jebusites. So that was the initial context. What Paul sees is Christ's ascension to the greater Zion in heaven. He himself took captives. And what were the captives? The demonic realm. The demons, Satan, he took them captive. Why? Because he obliterated their power once and for all by the finished work of the cross. No longer were their allegations ever matter again. Their accusations against us. So that's what he did. Dear ones, the ascension of Christ always has two metaphors behind it. One is the constant ascension to Jerusalem that the people of God were to do year after year after year at the great feast. In fact, that's the point of the Hallel Psalms. Why are they singing the Hallel Psalms? Because year after year, they would ascend to Zion, and they were foreshadowing the time that one day, when Messiah comes, he's going to ascend to Zion. And therefore, they will in peace forevermore. The second imagery behind the ascension is that of a victory of a military ruler. After they defeat their enemies, they ascend to the throne and they have their victory parade. That also is part of what is being depicted here. Notice verse 9. It says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also who had descended into the lower parts of the earth? The, the, the descending to the lower parts of the earth is probably a reference to the crucifixion and the death and burial of Christ. So the same one who had died and was buried is the one who ascended and led captives captive. That's a reference to his ascension. And notice he's taking captives He's not being rescued from Satan. He's pillaging Satan. Let me show you another one. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. Peter gives the gospel here. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. That term, hapax, once and never again. The just for the unjust. There's substitution. If someone denies the substitutionary attunement, it's right there. Hoper. It's for the unjust so that, here's the purpose, that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now stop there. Let's deal with this phrase, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The, the difference between the flesh and the spirit here are two modes of existence. Do you remember that when Jesus was given his resurrected body, he could appear within rooms, but yet he could eat? He would say to Peter and his apostles, don't be scared, I'm not a spirit, I have flesh and bone. Remember, so he really has a physical body. So spiritual does not mean he has an ethereal-like, floaty, ghost-like body, but that it's of a higher order, one that's never subject to decay again, one that will always exist, one that can go to heaven or can exist among men, one that can eat but that doesn't need to eat, one that's not limited by time and space. He's, and let me prove this to you. Turn your Bibles real quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Paul distinguishes between two different orders of the body. 1 Corinthians 15.44, talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.44, Paul says the resurrected body, he's talking about that. He says, first of all, it's sown a natural body. The natural body is being born once into the world. But if you're born again, you're going to get a resurrected body. He says it is raised a spiritual body. Notice the contrast between the natural and the spiritual. That's the same contrast that we have here in Revelation, excuse me, in 1 Peter 3, 18, between the flesh or natural and the spiritual. Why is that important? Because if you don't interpret that correctly, you're going to be wrong in verse 19. 
What Peter is saying is that in the sphere of the spirit, that is in his spiritual resurrected body, in the new mode of existence, in Christ's glorified resurrected body, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That's what Peter's saying. And what that means, in fact, let me read to you from Thomas Schreiner, one of the gifted scholars in 1 Peter. He says, quote, The majority view among scholars today is that this text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over evil angels. These evil angels, according to Genesis 6, had sexual relations with women and were imprisoned because of their sin. The point of the message then is that, the, that Christ descended, is, excuse me, is not that he descended into hell, but that as in verse 322, his victory is over evil angelic powers. That's exactly what happened at Christ's ascension. He had victory. It was never depicted as rescue. One more passage to double down on that. Just three verses later, regarding Christ, notice it says, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. When did he go into heaven? At his ascension. After angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Does that sound like a rescue? No, that sounds like the ascension is victory over the demonic and Satan. So if Revelation 12 Verses 1 through 5 is about a rescue from Satan devouring the child. The ascension is not a good candidate, but the rapture is. The rapture is, an, is really what it's about. Revelation 12, 4 through 5. Let's read it again. This is the debated text. This is Satan. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. That's the threat. Does that sound like the threat Jesus is undergoing at the ascension where the angels and authorities are subjected to him? No. So what's the remedy to the child being threatened? Harpazo, caught up, the rapture. Here we have rescue. Here we have dominion and authority and power and victory. So they can't be talking about the same thing. Why is that important? I think clearly the harpazo of the male child is the rapture of the church by the Messiah. So in other words, now in Revelation 12, verse 5, you have a reference to the rapture just like you do in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. That means this is occurring not at the first coming of Christ, but at the second coming. Let me fast forward. I'll show you one more thing. Here's the way I would see it. The grand scheme. Christ goes up after the cross. Satan goes down. After Christ dies, he's exalted by being buried with the wealthy. That was a promise of Isaiah 53.9. Now, that's not much. You might say, well, hey, big whoop, you're buried with the wealthy? <laughs> that's a yawner. You're still buried. Yeah, but it just begins there because on the third day, he's raised from the dead. Prophesied in Isaiah 53.10. So Jesus, after the cross, is going up. Christ ascends to the right hand of God. That's his ascension. And we, sh we have shown today that that's victory over the demonic realm. It's victory over Satan. But then one day he returns to rule over the earth. That's been the prayer that we've been to pray. We've been meant to pray that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ will be ruling in the heavens and over the earth will be over everything. So from the cross, he just goes up, up, and up. But at the time of the cross, Satan goes down. Jesus dies at his first advent. Satan's accusations have no merit. They were nailed to the cross, as it says in Colossians 2 in that passage. No more can the accusations have any merit against us. From there, he goes down at the second coming of Christ. Satan is thrown down to the earth. We go up, harpazo, rapture, he goes down. God won't listen to him anymore in the throne room. From there, after the millennial kingdom, or in the millennial kingdom, I should say, He's going to be thrown into the abyss. So now he's not only thrown down to the earth, now he's thrown into the abyss, but at the end of the thousand years, he's released for a short time. After he's released, he's destroyed once again, and now where is he thrown? Into the lake of fire forever. And you can follow this. Satan's accusations have no merit. Notice the timeline real quick. That's at the cross. Satan is thrown down from heaven to earth. That's at the seven-year parousia. Satan is bound in the abyss for the thousand-year millennium. Satan is thrown to hell forever. That's the eternal states. Why is that important in our debate over eschatology? The amillennialist says it all happens here. There's no process behind it. It all happens there. 
And so the natural question is, if Satan was bound by the work of the cross, then why is Satan loosed? Is the work of the cross ever going to be undone? Well, of course not. So do you see then that they've taken, they've taken the process and they scrunched it all into happening at one time? Where the Bible is telling you, no, this happens over time. Revelation gives you the process of the summary statements that are elsewhere given in the New Testament. Let's not bow down to the amillennialist on this. Let's show what the scriptures are truly saying. Yes, then we'll close with prayer. Boy, I was a real skeptic at the beginning of this. And uh, I got got to hand it to you. Your proof text on this was uh, second to none. Oh, good. I hope uh, it's, you know, again, I'm open to correction. So this is, I, I wanted to throw it out to all of you because I respect all of you as being your own theologians. And if there's a weakness, I know it will come out here at some point. So... Yeah, um, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the promises, Lord, that you are coming again and that because we have faith in Christ, we're going to be partakers of the glorious kingdom. We pray for Bob. We pray as he teaches this difficult text, Lord, that you would be with him and give us ears to hear and minds to understand. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord's Supper today. We pray that we'd always remember what you have done, but also where this is going the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope it was uh, somewhat persuasive. This nails it. It's some of the best work out there. I don't know.